Well, today is uh, Palm Sunday, a Sunday that uh, the church uh, recognizes as the, the Sunday uh, when Jesus came in to, uh, to Jerusalem and rode in on a, on a, uh, a colt. And um, uh, the people that were there um, uh, waved palm branches and laid their coats out on the road for the colt to walk across. And um, that's how we get the, the term Palm Sunday. And it, it's the beginning of what's known as the Passion Week. Uh, the Passion Week is known, that's the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry that culminates in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so there's a lot of things that happen that week, but today I just want to focus a little bit on uh, the circumstances around two different events. The first one being the triumphal entry, entry uh, where we get Palm Sunday from, and then uh, later on uh, another story from the book of Matthew uh, that happens later in that week. But when I was preparing for this message, I uh, ran across a little little uh, story about a, a father who um, had, a, had a son. And uh, one on Palm Sunday uh, years ago, the, the little boy, he, he wasn't feeling well. He was sick. And so on Sunday, he stayed home from church. Well, when the dad got home uh, from church that Sunday, he had a palm branch in his hand. And the son was like, Dad, what's the palm branch for? And he said, well, son, the palm branch rep represents what happened when Jesus rode into Jerusalem uh, on the Sunday before his crucifixion, which is called Palm Sunday. And when he was coming in, uh, people would uh, wave their palm branches. And so when Jesus comes, they wave their palm branches in recognition of that. So today, we all got palm branches. And the son just looked at him and said, oh, shucks, Dad, the one Sunday I missed, Jesus shows up. The sad thing is, I, I think that's, that, that's the way it feels like sometimes, is that, that Jesus only shows up a few Sundays a year, um, but Jesus should show up every week uh, in the life of the church. That's what we're here for, is to celebrate uh, every week what Jesus does for us um, in our lives that culminated in his death, burial, and resurrection. Well, today we're going to look at the story of Palm Sunday taken from the Gospels, and and we're going to look also at, a, at another story. So if you have your Bibles in John 12, I'm going to ask you if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning. We're going to read some verses in John 12, and then we're going to flip over to Matthew 27 and read a few verses there. In John chapter 12, I, I like John's version of it because it gives us a very specific um, idea that the other Gospels don't record. And I'm going to point that out as we go through today. But in John chapter 12, starting in verse 12, um, it says, The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. 
Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. God, I pray today that you'd bless the reading of your word. And now as we examine it this morning, I pray that I would decrease and your spirit living in me would increase and that the words would be shared today would be yours and not mine. And they will find the place you have for them in the hearts and lives of your people today. And we pray that you'd be glorified in them. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So that particular text points to the triumphal entry of Jesus when he comes into Jerusalem, and it gives us some, some information about that. And then, and, and you don't necessarily have to flip there, but I'm going to read some verses out of Matthew chapter 27 this morning as well. In Matthew 27, we, we get the account of another gathering of people in Jerusalem at the end of the week, okay? And, and it's at, um, at the final trial of Jesus when uh, he's back before Pilate, and Pilate's having to finally decide what he's going to do with Jesus. So in Matthew 27, listen to what the words have said in Matthew 27, starting in verse 15. It says, At the festival, the governor's custom was to release the, to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who is it you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was because of envy that they had handed him over. And then jump down to verse 21. So the governor asked them again, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And Barabbas, they answered. Pilate asked them, What should I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all answered, Crucify him. And so what we have in that particular case, when we looked at those two different meetings or gatherings concerning Jesus, we have two gatherings concerning Jesus that come out with completely different outcomes. First, we have the triumphal entry of Christ, the time where the crowd gathered in multitudes to welcome Jesus to Jerusalem with shouts of praise and adoration. And then our second text reveals Jesus's final trial before Pilate and many from the same crowd because it's in the same community, it happens in the same place, they exchanged those words from Hosanna, those words for praise, for words of death. They, they literally went from shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Why the change? Particularly in about five days, maybe four days, depending on how you want to translate that. Why the change? Well, the great evangelist Billy Graham has, has once been quoted uh, as saying that the greatest mission field in our country today is in the local church, the people sitting in the pews. Now, I'm not sure whether that statement is true or not, but, but the one thing that I do know is that many people know what to say, they know how to say it, and they even know when to say it. But when the rubber truly meets the road, there's no personal relationship with Jesus. There's no salvation, just empty words. And I believe that is exactly what our text depict. On Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the people shouted praises, and they praised God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen, particularly, that's why I read John's version, because Jesus had called Lazarus out of the tomb. So he had already raised someone from the dead. And they praised God for that and for the miracles. But on Friday, 
They are shouting, give us Barabbas. We want to crucify Jesus, crucify him. And, and while there may be many possible reasons why that happened and why that change come, I believe there's one simple reason, and it's their words didn't match their heart. I believe their words didn't match their heart. I believe they possessed a casual faith, not a committed faith in Jesus. So this morning, I want to focus on these two particular stories. And, and what I want to do is I want to take from God's word and look at the idea of having a committed faith. A faith that, that is true and, and committed even when everything else isn't going our way, but we, that we wouldn't have just a lip service faith, that we would have a truly committed faith. Because again, I think that a lot of what the crowd gets a bad name for, many in our churches are guilty of the same thing. We praise Jesus on Sunday, but we live like crucify him Monday through Saturday. We, we, we exalt Christ here, but we live without that as a main characteristic of our life during the week. Now, I'm not saying that's true of all of us, but I am saying it's true of most of us, at least from time to time. And so I want to look at the difference here. And I think our stories, when we look at them, they show uh, three, particular, three particular aspects of a committed faith versus a casual faith. First of all, I believe that a committed faith is Christ-centered, whereas a casual faith is self-centered. A committed faith is Christ-centered, whereas a casual faith is self-centered. Now, this may sound obvious, but I think we often miss it. Because in America, in our culture, we tend to want to squeeze Christ and God into our calendars when it's convenient instead of allowing him to have the priority and then squeezing everything else into our calendars. It's like, now, now don't think I say we say this, but it's like we say, okay, God, I've made my calendar and I can squeeze you in here, here, and maybe here unless something else comes up. But this is what I can give you right now. Instead of saying, okay, God, what do you want me to do with my calendar? And then squeezing everything else in, God is one of the first things that we kind of cut out. He becomes secondary and as needed God in our lives sometimes. Now, in our passage... And what ends up happening with that, by the way, is we end up only turning to God when it's convenient or when it's useful. What I mean by that is we squeeze God in when it's convenient times, and then we do everything else we want to do until the bottom drops out, and then we want to then we want to make time for him. And then when the bad times are over, we just go back to squeezing him back in when it's convenient. Now, in our passage... The people praised Jesus as he passed by, but many of them, I believe, only praised him for two reasons. Chuck mentioned one of them, and I mentioned the other, but I want to remind you of both of them. Number one, I believe that many of them, if not all of them, um, were praising him because of the miracles he had performed. 
If you go back and you read all the different accounts, all four Gospels have the triumphal entry in them. And you read them, and they all give you a little bit different of a take on it. But in John's in particular, we're told that they met, they were the ones that knew about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And Scripture says that those that witnessed Lazarus being rose from the dead went ahead of Jesus and testified to that fact. And that began to rile everyone else up because they had heard what Jesus did. And they came to praise because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So they began to praise God for the miracles that God had performed through Jesus. But secondly, they praised God because they saw in Jesus a way to be politically delivered from the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, they saw in Jesus a deliverer as Moses was a deliverer from the bondage of Egypt. They saw Jesus as a deliverer from the bondage of Rome. As a matter of fact, if you go back in, Rome, in, in John 12, you'll get, uh, starting in, um, sorry, in, verse, uh, in chapter 11, you'll get this plot to kill Jesus by the, uh, by the high court or the, by the Pharisees. And when you read that, you'll find that one of the main reasons why they wanted to plot to kill Jesus is because they were afraid that the people were going to follow Jesus as a, as a king, as a ruler, and that Rome would get mad and irritated and would decimate their country as a nation. And that's where we get the story of Caiaphas standing as the high priest and saying, you've forgotten that it's better for one man to die for the whole nation than the whole nation to die. And in that same year, Caiaphas, the high priest, had prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation of Israel and for the wayward nations of the people of God. And so that's where you find that's in John chapter 11. And so there was this plot to kill Jesus. They wanted to get rid of him uh, because they were afraid that the people were going to revolt and follow Jesus as a political leader. They wanted to be set free from the uh, from basically the bondage of Rome, Roman captivity. And so they praised God for that. As a matter of fact, if you look at their praise, you can see that in their actual words. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And, and so both of these attitudes show that their praise, while they were praising him, it shows that their praise was tempered with an attitude of what Jesus can do for me. Their, their attitude of praise, it was tempered with the idea what can he do for me? He's performed these miracles, so we'll praise him. He, he's coming to deliver us, so we'll praise him. So their praise, though it was real praise, it was tempered with the attitude of what can you do for me? Yet a few days later at the trial, they saw a completely different Jesus. They saw a Jesus that had been beaten and scourged. They saw a Jesus that the Bible describes as being beaten so bad that he was almost unrecognizable. And all of a sudden, he goes from being this this great guy who performed these miracles who was going to be their deliverer to this beaten human who you can't even recognize. Obviously, he's not God. Obviously, he's not the son of God. Or he wouldn't allow the Romans to do this to us because he's here to deliver us from the Romans. And now he's letting them beat him like that. And so their, their attitudes completely changed when they saw a beaten and disfigured Jesus, a man who, in their mind, could no longer help them with they're what they needed and be what they thought he was going to be. 
And so their worship changed. Now, why did they change? Because for them, it was all about them. It wasn't about Jesus. Their praise, though it was real praise, was not true worship. They were worshiping Christ for what they could get out of it instead of just worshiping him because of who he is. And, and so the relationship that we need to have is a Christ-centered relationship. The worship and praise we need to offer should be Christ-centered praise and worship, not self-centered. What I mean by that is we have to quit looking to God and Jesus as what can you do for me? You know, if you'll do this for me, you ever tried to make a deal with God? God, you know, if you'll do this for me, I promise I'll never do that again, or I promise I'll do this, or I promise I'll do that. And we try to, we try to make a deal with God. We need to move past that kind of faith to a committed faith that says, you know what, it's not about me, it's about you. And, and so committed faith is Christ-centered, not self-centered. The second aspect of committed faith that we can find in our, in our scriptures is that committed faith is relationship-driven. It's driven by a relationship with Christ. Now, many of those who gathered to throw their coats and their palm branches onto the street at the triumphal entry, who shouted praise, did so because it was the popular thing to do at the time. Remember, there was only a, a, a pretty good chunk, but there was only a few people in relation to a great crowd that witnessed Lazarus being called forth from the grave. But as they went and testified and people got excited, then that excitement began to grow. And so the crowd began to worship because it became the thing to do. You ever been in a situation where someone starts something and then it kind of begins to grow and then more people kind of jump in and, and then all of a sudden you look around and everybody's uh, jumped into that fray. I, at Super Summer one year, we were having a worship time, and the, and the people were worshiping, the students were worshiping, and it was time to go to, to, uh, to their last family group of the day, and the, 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 the God was moving, and the Spirit was moving, and, and so they actually come out and told the band to stop playing, and when they did, there was a few people that just started praising God with a song just a cappella, and then it began to spread to the point where the whole crowd was praising God. Have you ever seen something like that? I think that's similar to what happened here. The people who saw Lazarus went and were testifying and praising God, and people began to get drawn into that, and that led to what we see as a great crowd throwing their palm branches and laying their coats out. They, those great crowd didn't see Lazarus raised from the dead, but they heard that, and so they come to praise what they've been told. And so I believe there were many there that day that were praising because it became the popular thing to do at the time. Perhaps some began doing it with sincere motives, but uh, others soon did it because others were doing it, and, and it just kind of spread. Later at that trial, though, shouting crucify him was the popular thing to do. So five days later, the popular thing was no longer praise. It was now crucify. And so it became the popular thing to do. As a matter of fact, for a brief moment, 
at this trial, it actually became the popular thing to do to make a mass murderer and criminal the hero when they shouted, give us Barabbas instead of Christ. And, and so there was, there was this idea where, where people were, were doing it because it was the popular thing to do, not because it, it was centered on a personal relationship with Christ. You see, in our own lives, the committed faith comes only through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, one where every day is fresh and new as he personally directs our steps. Thus, a committed faith isn't about giving Jesus lip service. It's about having and maintaining a personal relationship with Christ. You can talk a solid faith, but talk doesn't necessarily equate a solid, committed faith. Actions speak way louder than words. And, and that's for me, too. And, and it becomes real easy to, to offer lip service, but have our hearts far from Christ. But a committed faith is driven by a personal relationship, not about the trendy thing to do or because everyone else is doing it. A committed faith is focused on a personal relationship with Jesus. And then the third aspect of a committed faith this morning is that committed faith isn't, or sorry, let me say it like this. A committed faith is consistent even in the bad times. A committed faith is consistent consistent, even in the midst of bad circumstances. You see, a committed faith is not swayed or blocked by our personal trials and cries, crisis. Committed faith doesn't have to have everything going our way in order to stay committed to Christ. At the parade, again, it was, it was popular to offer Christ praise because everyone was doing it. But at the trial, to speak out for Jesus was risky. It was possibly even life-threatening. One of the reasons why Peter denied Jesus is because he was afraid. He was afraid that if he identified with Jesus, the same thing that happened to Jesus was going to happen to him. And, and, and so we have this, this understanding that that. Sometimes being committed is not always easy. Sometimes it is very difficult to stay committed, particularly when things aren't going our way. But a lot of people come to Christ and expect everything to go their way. Maybe some inconvenience, but not too much. You know, because when we go, come to Christ, he's going to make everything good and, and we're going to be happy. And healthy and if we're lucky wealthy it's called the prosperity gospel that is causing massive issues in the American church because we've started to relate God to what we can get out of it and it has nothing to do with just keeping him centered it has everything to do with what we can get out of it but then what happens when the bottom falls out people don't know where to turn because the God they've come to know and the God they've come to trust, it's been, it's been stated to them to the point they believe it that nothing's ever bad's going to ever come their way. And so when things do go bad, who do they turn to? It can't be to God because their God can't allow that to happen. 
It causes major issues to have false theology that way. But true committed faith isn't dependent on whether our circumstances are good, and it's also not dependent on whether our circumstances are bad. Here's the point. If, if our faith is based on our situations or our circumstances, it will never be committed. It will always be casual. Why? Because our circumstances fluctuate. A casual believer fluctuates. Hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold. Consistent, non-consistent, consistent, non-consistent. That's up and down casual faith. And if we base our faith on our circumstances, which are constantly in our world, up, down, up, down, good, bad, good, bad. You see what I'm saying? We are never going to be committed because every time our situations change, we're going to struggle with having committed faith. In my life, I've taken a lot of groups to big Christian events where the praises for God rocked the entire arena, where everyone was praising God and, and worshiping God. But then returning home, while everyone is still kind of glowing from that worship, particularly when I was a youth minister, I would ask them, and I would say something like this, guys, it, it's easy to do that here, but tomorrow you face a hard task. Can you continue to praise God when the rest of the world is not praising God? Can you continue to praise God, in fact, in a world that is mocking and laughing at you for praising God? Can you continue to do what you're doing tomorrow if your world gets flipped upside down? You see, a committed faith isn't about how high we can sing and how loud we can praise. It's about how consistent we trust, whether our, whether our situation is good or whether our situation is not good. Because a committed faith takes the good with the bad. And praises Christ and keeps him on the throne no matter what circumstances come their way. Knowing all that we ever promised is in the midst of both our good and bad. Jesus is never going to leave us or forsake us. He's going to stand there with us. So we must trust him. And in trusting him, we eventually see that he is using our, our pressures, our trials, and our difficulties to bring us into a new degree of spiritual beauty. Listen to how James says this in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. He says, Consider it great joy, my brothers, when you experience various trials, because you know, listen, that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be Mature and complete, lacking nothing. The ability to do that, the ability to trust Christ, to continue being faithful, even in the midst of our trials, comes from having a committed faith, not a casual faith. So the question is, how's your faith this morning? Is your faith a casual faith, or is it a committed We don't know, and this is, I'll kind of close with this. We don't necessarily know 
if Jesus' disciples just were spectators to this event or if they were actually involved in the praise. We know they were there. They didn't really ever say if they were actively involved in praising the Hosannas. But what we do know is they were there. And there are two disciples that kind of sum up the difference between a casual faith and a committed faith. And it's the difference between Peter and John. Peter showed a casual faith in that when circumstances changed, he changed. He went from following Jesus to rejecting Jesus. John, on the other hand, is the only disciple that we know of for sure that was at the actual crucifixion of Jesus. He never left. The last words of Jesus, it's a great Mother's Day sermon. I may have preached it here before, but the last words of Jesus from the cross pertain to his mother. When he the, well, I say it's not necessarily his last words. His last words, Father, into your hand, I commit my spirit. But his last command from the cross was for Mary and John. To Mary, behold your son. To John, behold your mother. He couldn't say that if John wasn't present. What made John different than Peter? Committed the good news is Peter's went from casual faith to committed faith. Peter went from rejecting Jesus to being the first preacher in the local church. Peter went from rejecting Jesus out of fear to proclaiming Jesus to the same crowd. So if you're here this morning and you would say, you know what, my faith probably more resembles that of a casual faith, the good news is you don't have to stay there. You can turn to a committed faith. But the only way to do that is to stop allowing your circumstances dictate your faith. Stop allowing um, your, your, your desire to serve him being based on your needs instead of on just serving him because of who he is. As John would say, John the Baptist would say, I must decrease, you must increase. So if you're casually committed to Christ today, I pray that you would turn and be fully committed. Not allowing your circumstances or yourself to dictate if you're going to be committed. But instead to stay true every day, constantly in a committed relationship with Jesus. And let me tell you this. As we approach this week, that we know the rest of the story, but as we approach this week where Jesus ends up suffering incredibly for us, a week where our sins later in the week are literally cast on Jesus as he's nailed to the cross to pay our punishment, to pay our penalty as he was crucified on that tree. Thinking about that, ask yourself this. Doesn't he deserve 
for you to be committed to him? He did for you what you could not do for yourself. I think one of the reasons why so many of us struggle with casual commitment to Christ is because we don't daily consider what he did for you and I. It's hard to be casual when every day you remember that apart from Jesus, you'd be lost. Apart from Jesus, you'd have no hope. Apart from Jesus, if you were to die, you would die in your sins and spend an eternity separated from God. If it wasn't for Jesus, if it wasn't for Jesus, if we're mindful of that every day, it's a little bit easier to be committed to him than when we just approach Jesus casually, not truly reflecting on everything he did for you and me.